This isn't a cruise ship, it's a battleship. I'm not even the captain, Jesus is. And he's calling us to war. He's calling us to arms. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, the scripture tells us, as we studied last week, if you just glance up one verse two verses, you'll see that the scripture says in verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're told by Paul, as he sets up this section of scripture, to not be conformed to this world. And yet, the world has some things to say about community, about privacy, about church and about Christ. The world says, at the end of the day, you have to look out for number one. But what does the word say? We're not to be conformed to this world. The word says, Philippians 2, 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The world says, nice guys finish last. No one ever pays attention to the servant in the room. But what does the word say? The word says in Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The world says stay away from toxic, difficult, annoying people. Just cancel them like you did your cable. But the word says, Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The world says you have to assert yourself to get ahead. But the word says, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The world says, oh, well, yes, I'm fond of Jesus, but I don't love the church. And the word says, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother, 1 John 4, 21. The world even now, greatly today, says, my body, my choice, give me space, give me freedom, give me full autonomy with my schedule and my margin. And in our text this morning, the word says in verse 5 in the New Living, says, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. As we continue our study of the book of Romans, we've moved from the theology of chapters 1 through 11, and even through the doxology at the end and the conclusion of chapter 11, to, as we began last week, a much more practical section, a practical emphasis. One scholar says, this section of Romans has, quote, an imperative ring. And we're going to see that. There are many commands in this chapter. But as we see with almost all of Paul's writings, the imperative flows out from the indicative. Does that make sense? In other words, what we believe shapes then how we behave. 
And in our text this morning, Paul is going to issue a command, which you'll see in verse 3. Bradley just read it. It springs out from the grace that he had been given by God. And so today we're going to see how God's grace shapes us. It's been given to us, which then compels us how to act and interact within the covenant community of grace that we're joined with. And we would call the covenant community of grace the church. We, as individuals are a part of a larger body, a broader community, and each of us has a part to play. The world may have its own set of values regarding relationships and accountability and even their view of church membership, but we aren't to be conformed to this world. And because there is so much application in this chapter and in this text in particular, we are not going to need to section off a different time in the sermon for application, because the text itself is the application of a renewed mind. In fact, all of Romans 12 is the application of testing and discerning God's good, acceptable, perfect will within a body of believers. So today in this text, we're really going to cover part one, and next week part two of what a covenant community of people who have been shaped by God's grace looks like. So today in our text, if you're taking note, we're going to see how we dwell together in three ways. Number one, believers dwell together with humility, verse three. We're also going to see how we dwell together harmoniously, verses four and five. And we'll see how we dwell together, not with hostility, but with hospitality or hospitably in verses six through eight. So with that as our template for today, let's read verse three again and how believers dwell together with humility. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, among you in the church in Rome, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, first note with me where Paul's appeal comes from. He says it is, quote, by the grace given to me. So I think it's important to begin with this foundation that Paul's appeal is not motivated from law. It's not motivated out of legalism, nor is it a personal request. No, this is an overflow of what Paul had received himself from God. Because God had been gracious to Paul, Paul can now make these assertions to the Roman believers. In fact, God has been gracious not just to Paul, but to all of us. All of us can say, verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I can now encourage or exhort other believers. God has given grace to you. He has saved you. He has joined you with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. God has chosen you. He's justified you. And as we'll see today, he's gifted you, each one of us, by his grace. Now, contrary to some commentators, Paul is not merely addressing church officers or church leaders in verse 3. That's pretty clear, isn't it? When he uses the word everyone, he says in verse 3 that we are all not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But notice how we are to see ourselves. We're to view ourselves, he says, with sobriety. Now, when we see ourselves in light of other people, we tend to compare ourselves and we tend to put ourselves in a higher place above others. And then we judge accordingly. So when we see someone in the church who begins to sin, we scoff. We say, Psh, I would never sin like that, horrible sinner. And I'm perfect and odor-free. We tend to have that sort of thinking. But sober judgment means thinking of ourselves rightly. 
So humility is the byproduct of right thinking. If I know the gospel, then I know I'm a sinner, and I know you're a sinner. And so together we are sinners, but we're saved by God's incredible grace. And therefore, the church isn't here to serve my needs because I'm the most important in the room. No, we're all at the cross at level ground. One person says it this way, there's nothing in the gospel that would encourage anyone to have a superiority complex. (laughs) Now, I know that Paul's not addressing pastors specifically or church leaders, but since we're on this note, I am saddened to admit that the opposite of verse 3 is often the case with church leaders. And I'm not going to take a poll today because we'd just have mass discouragement if we went around the room and said, yeah, I've experienced that. But I would venture to say most, if not all of you, of us, have experienced this at some point in our lives where a pastor or church leader thought more highly of themselves than they ought to. Now, if that's ever happened to you here at Shoreline, I don't want to hear about it. I don't have time to listen to it. No, see, if I believe I'm God's gift to the church, if I'm God's gift to ministry, well, then what happens is I begin to treat people differently. I begin to look at people as cogs in the wheel of my vision. They're either helping me propel my vision forward or they're, they're barriers in the way, and we need to run over them. And so we have to be very careful that uh, we don't live in, this such, you know, in such a way where everything is viewed through this skewed lens of the church is my ministry, rather than having the right view of saying, no, this is gospel ministry. This is Christ's church. And so we're together propelling the gospel forward. It's the church that Jesus purchased with his own blood. He's jealous for his church, and he'll allow no one to claim her for himself. So we as leaders and we as Christians are not to take too high of a view of ourselves, but I guess we have to say this, neither should we take too low a view of ourselves. Adopting this false notion well, I'm just no one in the church and I'm completely dispensable and I'm unnecessary in the body. No, notice how we're to view ourselves. He says, no, you're to view yourself with sober judgment. And this means in the Greek, sound mind. In fact, it's the same Greek word that's used to describe that man who Jesus delivered the legions of demons out of. You remember that story? It's in Mark chapter 5. In Luke chapter 8, there's this guy who I believe is coming out of the caves. He's cutting himself. He's dangerous. He's scary. It's a scene out of a horror film, basically. And he's filled with a legion of demons. And the scripture tells us that, that Jesus delivers the, man, uh, the demons out of the man and then sends them into a herd of pigs, and the pigs go over the cliff. And it's just a crazy scene. And yet what happens, the crazier scene is not the pigs going over the cliff and the demons. The crazier scene is the fact that after this, the man is sitting dressed, and it says in the scripture, in his right mind. That's the crazy part. That's the unbelievable, miraculous part. And the word there is the same word that's used here. So to be out of your mind is the opposite of being in the right mind. In other words, this man had now a reasonable clarity of judgment. So you and I are to have the same thing. We're to judge ourselves rightly. We're to view ourselves with the right mind. And then notice what Paul says. He says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, this has caused a lot of controversy and a lot of confusion. The phrase, the measure of faith, very deeply complex. But listen, the idea is not as much that God has measured some faith to you, and then he sprinkled a little bit to you, sister. And then that one guy, he got all of the faith. I can't believe how much he was measured. That's not the idea at all. 
The idea is that there's a standard by which we are to measure ourselves by. In other words, it's the faith. So this is not your faith. Well, I have more faith, so I have more gifts. And you don't have as much faith, so God hasn't gifted you. You're not as important in the church. I'm more important because I have more gifts. Look how spectacular I am. That's not the idea at all. It's not my faith, my strong trust in God, but the faith. John Stott says it this way. This for all Christians is the same. Namely, saving faith in Christ crucified. And only this gospel of the cross can enable us to measure ourselves soberly. So does that make sense? Because of God's gospel, because of God's grace, we can view ourselves rightly, proportionately, which means humbly. We can dwell with other believers in the church, not as someone who's superior, but as someone who's submitted. Someone who defers to others out of reverence for Christ. And I'll make the case this morning that a congregation with soberly-minded, humble believers advancing the gospel together is a force that the gates of hell cannot defend against. Now, let's look at our second section and how this right thinking continues in the church community with the greater concept being that we dwell together with harmony. Verses 4 and 5. Notice verse 4. He says, for, so he's building a train of thought here, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Don't miss this. Paul's analogy is that of a human body. And the members of a body are also known, we don't use that phrase often, but they're also known as body parts. So the eyes, the hands, the feet, the ears. Each of these are members, or you could say parts, of the body. And each of these are important. And not only that, but each of these body parts or body members do different things. The eyes see, the ears hear, the hands do certain things, the feet help you to walk. They're all important. In fact, if you don't believe me, stub your pinky toe. And tell me how important every member of the body is. Just a, you get just a small little uh, fracture in your toe, and that can affect the entire body. Now, there's a parallel passage that I want you to jot down and read later. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 gives us a parallel passage about the body, and Paul uses that similar illustration. Each of the members, the body parts, are unique and distinct, but... They all do something different. And the whole body isn't one body part. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, if the whole body were an eye, that would be ghastly. And then he says, but where would the other senses be? We wouldn't be able to hear. We would just be able to see everything, but we'd be deaf. We wouldn't have feet to walk. We'd just be sitting there judging everyone. We would have no ability to do anything. And so his argument here, his illustration is there's one body made of a variety of unified members, each doing vital work, to keep the body functioning in a healthy way. Is there a better illustration that we could use to describe the church? See, the church is Christ's body. He's the head. We are the members. And it's remarkable what a human body can accomplish in just a day. I found this out in a little bit of research. If you're an adult of average weight, in one day, 24 hours, your heart beats over 103,000 times. Your blood travels 168 million miles. You'll breathe over 23,000 times. You're going to eat about three pounds of food, and you're going to drink a little under three quarts of liquids. 
you're going to speak right under 5,000 words. Some of you know who you are. You speak way more than that. <clears throat> and maybe you don't. Uh, if you don't know about that, ask a friend. They'll tell you. You move about 750 muscles, and you exercise 7 million brain cells, if you have any left from college. So all in a day's work, in one day. Paul uses this analogy of the human body to illustrate two important ideas, both the diversity as well as the complementarity of the human body. What a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. You see, within every local expression of Christ's church, there are a variety of members. And each of us have different gifts, and each of us have different functions, and yet all of these work together in harmony. David Gusick says it this way, your body is a collection of different entities brought together for a common purpose and a common goal. Notice that Paul says, though we're many, we are one body in Christ. And he says we're individually members one of another. Now the word members or membership can sometimes be misunderstood. But being a member in a church, or the phrase church membership, I just want to dispel some myths here and some misunderstanding. The, ch the phrase church member or church membership is not about getting on some static roster somewhere in the church database, nor is it about getting in the church directory along with that outdated picture of your old hairstyle. That's not the idea of church membership. It's not about making you a member of Christ's church, but simply confirming you already are a member of Christ's church and then welcoming you into a local expression to use your gifts in that church. Every semester, we welcome new members into our fellowship, but first we take the time to get to know those who are seeking to be members. And we also take the time to get to express who we are as a church. We have those classes, Shoreline Explored, two of them. We learn who we are as a church and what it means to be a member in the church. And since we're in this text, I just want to take a moment and touch on this point about what it means to be a member. And so I'm just going to read a brief thing from our member covenant. In that covenant, we say this, when an individual is saved, he becomes a member of the body of Christ. Remember, I told you 1 Corinthians 12, that parallel passage, we quote this in the member covenant. Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So we go on to say in the covenant, because he or she is united to Christ and the other members of the body in this way, he's therefore qualified to become a member of a local expression of that body. To become a member of a church is to formally commit oneself to an identifiable local body of believers who have joined together for specific divinely ordained purposes. And if you want to know what those purposes are, you have to come to the class. Uh, in addition, we say, when one becomes a member of a church, he submits himself to the care and authority of the biblically qualified elders that God has placed in that assembly. Living out a commitment to a local church involves many responsibilities. So we list them, exemplifying a godly lifestyle in the community, exercising one's spiritual gifts in diligent service, contributing financially to the work of ministry, giving and receiving admonishment with meekness and in love, and in uh, faithfully participating in corporate worship. And we go to, on to say this in conclusion, much is expected, but much is at stake. For only when every believer is faithful to this kind of commitment 
Is the church able to live up to her calling as Christ's representative here on earth? You see, Paul uses this fantastic analogy of the human body, but it's not the only analogy in the New Testament. If you're taking notes, there's a few more. We opened our church gathering this morning with a call to worship from 1 Timothy, and we don't have this on the screen, but there Paul says to Timothy that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. In fact, in Ephesians 2.19, he also there, along with 1 Timothy 3, calls the church the household of God. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens or outsiders, foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are the family of God. God is our father. We are his beloved children. And thus we're members of a covenantal family, the household of God. Well, Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 and then mentions that the church is the temple of God. He says, this temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, not a pastor, but Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but we as the church are the dwelling place of God, the temple of God, where he tabernacles among his people. It's not too far of a stretch to say that we are on holy ground, so to speak, when the church gathers together corporately. I know in the 80s, 90s, we moved away from that sense of reverence and it's very casual and yet we can't get away from this fact that he says that you are a structure. You're a body that is a building growing together, and it's a holy temple. Something really holy happens when we gather together. Well, not only that, but in Revelation 21, 2 and 9, we learn that the church is the bride of Christ. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then he says, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. God's people are the bride of Christ. And Ephesians 5 describes the relationship that we as husbands have with our wives. And Paul says, this is a mystery. It's Christ and his church. Christ's bride is the church. We as the church have died to the law. We're resurrected. We're now joined with Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, who's paid our dowry with his blood. So these are great pictures of what it means to be the church. And so contrary to the beliefs of our worldly culture, we do need each other. Being a member of our church at Shoreline, that's participating in a family. That's, that's a microcosm of the universal household of God. And we are united to Christ and to one another. Verse 5 reminds you and I, you do not, I, we do not belong to ourselves. No, we belong to the Lord Jesus and to the other members of his body. So you are not a disembodied part. You're not an amputated arm because we know this. An amputated arm does very little effective work in the body. It's cut off from the body. No, we're joined with the body. And the health of the body part necessitates that it's well connected to the rest of the body. And see, this is glorious because all of us bring such diversity to one body. We're all unique. We're all distinct. And yet we're united as one. Jen and I were flipping through some uh, channels last night and we came across uh, John Williams, who of course is the greatest composer in history. If you don't know who he is, just Google him, Star Wars. 
And uh, in his uh, compositions, we, we were watching him doing the composing, and you see all these different players from the different parts of the orchestra all playing a very distinct part, and yet you don't really hear the one part. You hear all of the parts in unison, and that's who we are. There's not uniformity in the church where everyone has the same gift and the same ethnicity, and we all dress the same, talk the same, look the same. No, we don't seek uniformity in the church. We seek unity in the church where believers dwell together in our, our distinctions, and yet we dwell together in harmony. So though you and I don't all have the same function, we do all belong to the same body. We belong to one another, and so do the gifts that God has given us. The gifts God has given you are not for you. They're for me. <laughs> They're for you. They're for us. And so Paul's next point is that we are to dwell together with hospitality in the church, using our gifts, serving one another, verses six through eight. Now notice, again, I didn't say believers dwell together with hostility. So hospitality is just simply inviting people, welcoming them to bless them and to serve them. If you have a home, practice hospitality. We'll see that next week in the rest of chapter 12. We are to welcome people into our home. But hospitality also means giving the church what the Holy Spirit has given to us. In this case, spiritual gifts. So notice verse 6. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. In other words, God has gifted each one of us his grace, as well as his grace gifts. That's really what spiritual gifts are in the Greek. It's grace gifts. And these gifts look different when we go from church to church or from believer to believer. But the important thing, don't miss this. The important thing is that Paul is stressing we need to actually use the gifts. Spiritual gifts get all of these different uh, arguments nowadays and throughout church history. We argue over the gifts, but Paul didn't write this to bring up argument. He brought it up to bring up utility. We're to use them. I'm bringing this up so that you'll use them. And so then he proceeds to list seven different gifts. And I just want to make sure you know this. This list is not exhaustive. There are nine other gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. There are eight other functions listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and 29. And there are five functions listed in Ephesians 4, 11. So don't get sidetracked on the different lists. The idea is that he says we're to use them. In fact, when he says us in verse 6, notice that having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Again, he's not just speaking to elders. He's not just speaking to church leaders. No, this encompasses every believer. We all have gifts that differ and we're to use them, we're to exercise them, we're to demonstrate them, we're to practice them among a covenant community of believers. You're not to bury the gift. You're not to use it selfishly. It's been given to you gracefully. So you're to use it to extend God's grace to others. So then he lists them. First we have, number one, prophecy. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now there's no argument about prophecy whatsoever throughout church history. No one disagrees on this at all. Well, some argue that prophecy continues today. So they'll say, I have a prophetic word for you. And next week you're going to get in a car accident. So don't take the interstate next week. And this is my prophetic word for you. Others would argue that any authoritative communication from God to man that's on par with Scripture has ceased because Scripture is closed and we have all the communication that we need from God through His Word. In fact, McDonald says this, there can be no inspired prophetic additions 
to the body of Christian doctrine today since the faith has once has been once for all delivered to the saints. So people land differently. Well, what is prophecy? Prophecy, if I'm going to simplify it, it's nothing more than the man of God declaring the mind of God, and in our case, as it has been revealed in Scripture. So it's not as much foretelling as it is forthtelling. Communicating God's word in a way that brings meaningful application to believers. And so the pulpit ministry, I would argue, is a place where prophetic activity takes place. God's word is declared to the church and it's applied in ways that edify, encourage, comfort, and challenge the believer. And notice what Paul says, prophecy must be in proportion to our faith. That does not mean you have to have more faith than you'll have more prophecy. You have more ability to share God's word with others. No, what he means is it's in agreement with the faith. So anyone, and I'm going to go on record, anyone who says, I have a word of prophecy and it contradicts scripture, we would say that's anathema. And any new revelation by definition is heresy. So oh, I've got a word from the Lord and it contradicts scripture. You don't have a word from the Lord whatsoever. So God would clear that up. If you have any arguments, don't at me. Just send me an email. And we'll talk later. Number two, service. He says, if service in our serving. And this is where we obtain the word deacon from. All Christians are called to be deacons in the general sense that we are to serve one another, serve the body, serve the Lord. But there's an office in the church known as the deacon. And this is where qualified men are called to serve the church and assist the pastors, or we call them elders. And we actually have three candidates who are in training right now. We've already uh, been introduced to them prayerfully. We will appoint them in just a few months in the new year, the official office of deacon. Here in this context, though, Paul doesn't mean all believers, and he doesn't mean the church officers we call deacons, but someone who has a particular gift endowed by the Holy Spirit to serve the church in a unique or particular way. Remember, Paul told the Corinthians in the parallel uh, verses to this, he says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. So there's a lot of different ways of serving, but there is one Lord. Over the years, I've seen this in the church, people using a variety of the gifts God has given them to serve the church. Uh, and this, though, is not just natural ability. It's a grace gift that the Holy Spirit gives some believers to uniquely help. Some have called this the gift of helps. And the person with the gift of helps is just available. They're just ready to serve in whatever way is needed. And not everyone has that gift to just, I'm here, I'm available. What do you need? I'm here to serve. Well, then he says, thirdly, the one who teaches in his teaching. So there is a spiritual gift of teaching. And someone who's gifted at teaching is going to need two things. They're first going to need someone who will recognize that gift and affirm it. And secondly, they need to develop that gift. It's not enough to say, well, the Holy Spirit gave me the gift of teaching, so I never need to grow in that gift. I'm just good. I'm just able to do it. No, the elders, we want to recognize as well as train those who have the gift of teaching, and we want to help sharpen that ax to be more effective. And I don't know if you've heard, but we have a teaching cohort here in the church where we're training teachers and we're looking for more men who have the gift of teaching to be a part of that. We meet once a month, typically early on a Wednesday morning, and we would love to see if you're interested, let us know, and we'll prayerfully consider that. We also hope to see a women's teaching group begin in the coming year. But if you have the gift of teaching, you need to be teaching. It may not be the pulpit, 
But hey, our kids' ministry, amen, <laughs> needs some more teachers. And, and the key is that we share that gift with the church. Well, then he says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. The word here is parakaleo. You may have heard that word before. It's a verb that can have wide meaning, but we also hear the Holy Spirit is the paraclete, the encourager, the comforter. So this word can mean ex exhortation, it can mean consolation, it can mean comfort, it can mean encouragement. Sometimes that exhort, uh, exhorter, it's platformed, meaning in a pulpit or with a pen, but it doesn't always come through a teaching or preaching ministry or writing. Many people who have the uh, ability to counsel, we would say they are the ones who have the gift of exhortation. Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement. That's what his name meant. And it was Barnabas, remember, who exhorted Saul of Tarsus to join him in Antioch and re-engage in gospel ministry. So if you have the gift of exhortation, you need to use it not only to encourage, but to build courage. And it's more of that latter, not just encourage people, but to build courage, to bolster people and to challenge them to follow Christ. Well, not only that, but he says the one who contributes in generosity. Uh, John Calvin saw this as the deacons who served the church by taking what was offered to the fellowship and then distributing the excess to those in the church who had needs. And it may certainly include that, but this seems to be referencing someone who's particularly gifted at seeing someone in need in the church and then seeking to generously bless and help them. We're, we're all told in the, in the scripture to uh, be generous to the Lord and to not give begrudgingly, and we're to care for one another. But see, this spiritual gift is someone who uniquely assists others with generous, graceful help. And some of us know who those people are. We just, we see them and we see their generosity. And by the grace of God, I'm praying for more of this gift so I, so our family can be more generous to others. Well, then he says the one who leads. And the one who leads is to lead, he says, with zeal. Now, literally, the one who leads in the Greek is um, he that is placed in front. So this can be any position that involves overseeing others. The person who's been gifted with spirit-empowered leadership is called to serve the church. Notice he says, with zeal, the word can be translated eagerness or diligent care. And there are many who lead without that, aren't there? They lead with a lack of zeal. We're not going to take a poll, but they lead with a lack of diligence, and it shows but in the church, in the home, men are called to lead, and we're called to lead with eagerness. So if you have a leadership gift that even the world has recognized in business, well, you need to find ways to use that to benefit the church, and you're to do that with eager diligence, with zeal. Then finally, he says, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Isn't it wonderful that our God is a merciful God? And because of that, we are called to perform acts of mercy on others who, by definition, are undeserving of it. But see, some are uniquely called to and gifted to extend God's mercy to those who desperately need it, whether it's like the scripture describes orphans, widows, or the foreigner, or where we see in our fellowship the sick, the elderly, the handicapped, the marginalized, the forgotten, or the overlooked. So the one who does these acts of mercy they're not doing it. Notice he says, not with a spirit of reluctance, not with a spirit of patronizing, but with a cheerful heart. There are many, even in this church, who need an act of mercy. And if you have this gift, you're to use it cheerfully. Now, I've used this illustration before. When we did our series together, 
uh, back when we were at Freedom Elementary, which it's hard to believe that was a year ago that we were meeting at Freedom Elementary. We've been in this, uh, in this building for a year, so it's hard to, it's hard to imagine uh, meeting on Sunday mornings. But back in that series, I used this illustration. I'm going to use it again to kind of demonstrate what would happen in a real-time scenario and what gift we might have out of this list. And it might not be in this list, but I just want to paint a picture. I just want you to picture Pastor Micah's wife, Katrina, comes walking in today to celebrate a birthday, right at the conclusion of, and that'd be crazy if she did, uh, she comes walking in with a big cake that she's made. And as she uh, walks in the door, the door closes on her faster than she expected. She drops the cake right there at the foyer of the church. The church's gifts will naturally come alive if that were to happen. So let me, de- let me demonstrate it this way. The person with the gift of mercy would run up and give Katrina a big hug and make sure she's okay. The person who leads would immediately stand up and organize, okay, you guys, grab a broom, grab a mop. Let's, let's uh, here, you need to go run to the store and get a replacement cake. The person who contributes would hear that and they would hand a $100 bill to the person who runs to Publix to get the cake. The person who exhorts would go to the people who are supposed to hold the door open and they would say, make sure and pay attention next time. And people are coming in the door. The person who teaches would then go and teach them how to hold the door open appropriately. The person who serves, they would be the one who's sweeping and mopping. And the person who has the gift of prophecy would say, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> now, as we consider the varieties of gifts that the Holy Spirit has gifted the church, the two most important things for us. It's not, are these still around today? Did they cease with the closes of canon? The, the most important thing is, well, let me, let me try to figure out exactly which gift I have and do a spiritual gift assessment. Well, I don't have that gift, so I don't need to give. That's not the idea. Two most important things. Number one, we've all been given a gift of God's grace by the Holy Spirit to bless and strengthen Jesus' church. And number two, we're to use this or these gifts for God's glory and our local church's good. There's much more to say about this. And next week, we'll see part two. Part two is a picture of love in action, a covenant community that's been radically shaped by God's grace and is building itself up in love. But before we close today, I do have a call to action for us in the form of a very convicting question that I want all of us, not to think of the person next to us and go, yeah, but for all of us to consider and to do some self-inspecting. Here's the question. Am I a contributor or am I a consumer in this or to this, this community? You see, we're never called to be consumers in the body of Christ, but contributors. And there's a big difference. Consumers shop for churches. They shop for churches that give them all the amenities. Maybe something close to home. Maybe people my age. There's upbeat and professional, joyful, quality music. There's a youth ministry. There's Bible study or small group options. Even if we're never going to go, at least there's options we can opt out of. In the church we planted back in Tampa in 2010, we had someone tell us that we didn't have that many children two years old for our toddler to fellowship with. And so we're leaving the church. That was a big punch in the gut. For us, I was working two extra jobs just to supply what was needed to advance the gospel. And we have a small handful of believers, and then we have people coming in as consumers. The top church growth experts, (laughs) there's a phrase, church growth expert, 
Uh, I think Jesus said, I'll build my church. But anyway, uh, they would argue the two most important things for a new person visiting church. Number one is a safe and fun kids ministry. Number two, a clean women's bathroom. (laughs) Really? I mean, that's definitely in 1 Thessalonians somewhere. It's definitely there. No, no. Not biblical exposition and prayer. Not holiness and worship. Not grace and truth. Babies and bathrooms. Is it any surprise to us that in the Western church, we are in absolute freefall decline, especially since 2020? The, the tree's been shaken, and the fruit that was kind of out there, it's been shaken off. And, and I believe God is doing a good work of pruning. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit of God to bring conviction on today's consumeristic mindset within the church and to rightly judge it, to prune it, to correct it, and to put it back in its rightful place. If you want to be a consumer, I love you, but go to the mall. Go to Amazon.com. Pick out your product, make your purchase, get your receipt. But if you want to advance the gospel with a handful of broken people, game on. Am I a contributor? Am I a consumer to this community? Listen, the church, I've said this many times, the church is not a cruise ship. I'm not the captain who's here to be your activities director and make sure your stay is as comfortable, engaging, or as memorable as possible. This isn't a cruise ship. It's a battleship. I'm not even the captain. Jesus is. And he's calling us to war. He's calling us to arms. We need no more casualties of friendly fire. It's time to man our stations. In fact, since I mentioned manning our stations, men, I want to address you directly here. God has called you, you to be the high priest of your home. He's called you to lovingly lead your family by example. And your family begins not when you have your first child. It begins with you and your wife. And it isn't anyone else's responsibility, like your wife, to get you up and ready for church on Sunday morning and to be here involved with the fellowship. It's your responsibility to take the Bible seriously, to stop eating popcorn in the stands or on the sidelines and making excuses and booing at the people actually on the field who are in the game. Get in the game. Let's stop with the excuses and the immaturity and the lack of accountability. When people start getting too close, you pull away, you leave the church and go to another fellowship where people won't know you. And you make up an excuse, well, the, le- the fellowship isn't friendly, the-, the preaching's too serious, or, you know, that one person never reached out to me. No, let's stop being a consumer. Let's take the time, the energy, the effort, and even the covenant requirements it takes to be a healthy and biblical member of this church. The Bible calls us to be contributors to the body. In fact, in the text you're probably going to read ahead for next week, we read these words, Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What are the needs of the saints in this church? Well, consumers won't know, but contributors will. Consumers aren't showing hospitality, but contributors are. Consumers aren't risking anything, and therefore you're not really receiving what you could because To risk being known means people actually reject you. Yes, that could happen. But it also means potential friendships, lifelong encouragement, future spouses for your kids, long-term direction and support. It means all of those are right across the threshold of risk. So church, I just implore you, let's be humble. Let's be harmonious. Let's be hospitable. Let's serve the Lord and one another. The hymn says it this way, "'Tis by serving in the body, riches of the head we share. Tis by functioning as members, Christ's full measure we will bear." We are members 
of Christ's body. He's the head. We've been joined with Jesus. Thus, may we sing with confident assurance that all these things are not done with the arm of the flesh. You go out like, pastor was a little bit serious today. That's not the ideal. I better, I better try harder and do, do a better job. No, that we would do this with Christ in us, that Christ is the one who supplies the strength to be a contributor. It's for his glory and it's by his spirit. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen? Let's stand together. We'll close in song singing those words. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Gracious Father, forgive us for glorying in our own strength, for thinking higher of ourselves than we ought, for treating the church as someone who does us errands, something that serves us, by coming to your precious bride who you paid for with your own precious blood, the bride that you are making radiant, washing with your word, we would come to that radiant bride and we would mistreat her. We would treat her as if she was here to serve me. Lord, forgive us. May we come with a heart full of gratitude for your grace, a heart full of willingness to serve. Lord, show us how we can get involved here in this fellowship. Maybe it starts, it does. It starts with being a believer, following Christ, repenting of our sin and trusting you, being baptized in obedience. It then follows that we would join this church, become a member of a covenant community of grace. And Lord, as we become members, we begin to serve. We begin to see the needs in the church and these needs spring up right in front of us. And then with gratitude, with humility, we can begin to serve one another in love. And Lord, as we do this, as we advance the gospel together, we see that needs are being met like the first century church. And yet those who hold back, those who restrict, those who lie to the Holy Spirit are rightly judged. Lord, we pray that we would continue to advance the gospel in Lakewood Ranch, Bradenton, Sarasota for the glory of God, for the good of this community. But Lord, we can't do that if it's just a handful of people who are willing to do the hard work. It has to be all of us. So forgive us for our sinful preference of ourselves and for thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, for holding back when we could have been generous. Lord, forgive us. May we today say, not, not I, but Christ in me, enables me to be the person God has called me to be and to be the functioning, healthy member of the church that I'm called to be. We thank you, Christ, that you've done the work from first to last, and now we glory in the cross and the resurrection. It's in your name alone that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.